We are in a series called Checkup. This morning we're talking about, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know why I had a mint in my mouth, but I can't preach with a mint in my mouth. Here we go. We're all good now. Back to this series called Checkup. Um, this morning, we are talking about relational health. Uh, some weeks ago, when we began this series, uh, we were talking about other kinds of health. But you know, when you go to a doctor for your physical health, they, they check some of the things that are important, critical indicators, blood pressure, pulse, temperature, weight, and so And uh, then they give you feedback. They let you know how you're doing. You're either doing well or you're not doing so well. You need to start eating this or stop eating that or take this pill or stop taking those pills or whatever. In this series, as I said, we are concerned with our health. In weeks earlier, we talked about spiritual health. We talked about being devoted to the things that are really essential for our spiritual health, being devoted to uh, things like the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and uh, the breaking of bread and to prayer. Uh, We followed last week, we we talked about financial health. That was everybody's favorite sermon where we talked about, you know, having a savings account, uh, sticking to a budget, uh, being generous and things of that nature. Things that are critically important if we're gonna have financial health. And today, as I said, we're diving into relational health. Turns out our relational health is very, very, very important to our well-being. In fact, there's been tons and tons and tons of research on this going back to uh, as far back as 100 years. And all of the research, all of it, shows that a person's happiness or well-being doesn't depend on money, doesn't depend on success, doesn't depend on popularity, doesn't uh, depend on how high they can go up the ladder of power or things of that nature. Uh, in fact, uh, it, it really is affected, a person's happiness is affected by none of those things. There's a Dr. Emiliana Simon Thomas. She's the science director for uh, the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California, Berkeley. And uh, she and her organization researches this stuff, you know, tons and tons of research on human flourishing and happiness. And she, uh, after giving us lots of details and so on, she summarizes Uh, some of her findings, and, and here are two sentences from her summary. She says, we find that people who have strong social connections are happier. Wow. She says, that's number one, strong social connections. Now, not just that. As I said, she does, and her organization does tons of research. Her findings also show that how we relate to each other has a lot to do with just uh, how happy we feel, you know? Uh, She writes this. She says, I am a neuroscientist by training, and I spent my career trying to understand the biological systems that motivate us toward behaviors like cooperation and reconciliation. And in fact, she says, there are systems in the body that drive us to be more social. Uh, For example, and you were all probably thinking of this, the mesolimbic dopamine system uh, linked to addiction also makes people feel pleasure when they give to others or when they serve others. If you measure hormones and activity in the body and the brain when people are being helpful or cooperating, you can see that pleasure happens, she writes. And she says, we are hardwired to be generous and giving toward others. 
That's just how we're literally put together biologically. And in fact, they've even done research on this. There's a guy named Bill Harbaugh. He's an economist from the University of Oregon. And he puts volunteers, um, because you couldn't do this to people probably any other way, but he put volunteers, well, you could force them, I guess. He put volunteers into a functional MRI scanner, meaning that they can function and talk and move and so, but a functional MRI scanner. And then he told some of the volunteers that they would sometimes have to give parts of their hard-earned money to charity. At other times, he would tell them, you get to keep all of your hard-earned money. And uh, this is what he writes about that experience and that research. He says, when people were informed that they would be giving to charity, the areas of their brain associated with pleasure and reward lit up. This kind of surprised them, actually. Uh, Just like they did when they got to keep it themselves. So apparently the same neurons and so on were firing at the idea of, of giving and helping others as were firing when they knew that they would get to keep their stuff for themselves. Yeah, which we know that gets us firing, right? So he says here is conclusion. So the act of giving is pleasurable. Other MRI studies have shown that the act of cooperating, of lending support to others, these things, he says, also give us pleasure. One more, one more. Uh, Kind of an interesting piece of research. At least it's interesting to me. Doesn't look like it's interesting to you, but it is to me. Two guys, James Cohen and David Sabara, have determined this is based on years of social psychology and neuroscience research. uh, And and this is a, a description of their findings. It's not their writing, but it's somebody writing about their findings. Are you with me? Okay, here's what, here's what these individuals uh, wrote. They said that for human beings, being alone is fundamentally harder than being together with others. That's what they're finding. Their research indicates that it, is sim- that it simply requires more effort and resources to function in the world solo. Our bodies, they say, reflect this fundamental preference for company or, in other words, relationship. So... Is it really any wonder that the early followers of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoted themselves to the fellowship, devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, and devoted themselves to prayer? In other words, they devoted themselves to gathering together in homes. They devoted themselves to studying the word of God together. They devoted themselves to praying for one another together. They devoted themselves to eating together. Is it really any wonder? It's kind of like, duh, you've been researching this for a hundred years. I mean, this is just kind of a subtext of the life of Jesus. You look at the life of Jesus. He built relationships with the three, Peter, James, and John, with the 12, with the 120, with thousands as he taught them and so. And uh, Jesus practiced these very things. We see them evident in his life. Friends, here at Deer Creek Church, we want to be devoted to the fellowship as well. We want to be devoted to this. We want to be together. Dr. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, writes these words. He says, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. You understand the context. This is not an argument for communism. Uh, The context was that there were people, uh, rich and poor, in the church there in Jerusalem, and uh, the poor had no way to take care of their immediate needs. 
And so those that had means, had property or had stuff that they could sell, said, you know what, we're going to help meet those needs. It's not saying that everybody literally sold everything they had and they lived in a big commune. Got that? Okay, good. Somebody's listening. Okay. Uh, so it says every day they continued to meet together in the temple court. So they would gather like this in larger groups. They would sing, they would pray, they would worship, they would offer sacrifice. Actually, they didn't offer the sacrifice. I take that back. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Point is this, here at Deer Creek Church, our primary vehicle for the fellowship For this thing of togetherness, this thing of gathering, besides Sunday morning when we do it like this, our primary vehicle for that is small group. In small group, we do all of these things that the early followers of Jesus did. We break bread together. Uh, We study and learn together. We pray for one another, support one another together. Um, Our small groups are the vehicle that we have in place for this thing called the fellowship, for growing and sustaining and improving relationships, which all the researchers tell us are absolutely vital for human flourishing, for our flourishing. But I'm just curious now, uh, and a quick show of hands will help us here. How many of you have ever had a problem with someone in a small group? And a small group could be your, your, your church small group, could be your family, could be work, could be a small group of people that you uh, know at school. How many here have ever had a problem with somebody in a small group? Okay, most all of us, lots of us. We know something together then about having difficulties in relationships. And... Um, So the $64,000 question would be, how do we make our relationships better? What do we do? Are there things we can do? If the relationships are this important for human flourishing, if it's the number one thing that is a predictor of human flourishing, how can we make them better? Whether it's a small group relationship kind of thing we're talking about or family or school or work or whatever, how do we make them better? And for the rest of our time this morning, that's what I really wanna talk about with you. I wanna talk about some keys to improving relationships. And this is regardless of your relationship status, married, single, old, young, doesn't matter, doesn't matter at all. These keys to improving relationships come right right out of the New Testament. They come out of a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. Paul was actually teaching the early church about how to have healthier, more Christ-like relationships. And he mentioned some characteristics or qualities that each of us need to cultivate. And uh, if we do that, the likelihood of our having healthy, satisfying relationships goes way, way up. Now, I've got a passage here that I was going to ask us to read together, but the version on the screen is a little different than my version. It's the new NIV, and I've got the old 1984 NIV. And so you can watch the words on the screen, but I'm just going to read them to you, and they'll be a little different. Are you still with me? Okay. Here's what Paul wrote, really. It's the 1984 NIV. Uh, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the text I want to talk about this morning. Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound like something a preacher would read in a church service on Sunday morning? 
But the truth is this. The truth is doing what Paul talks about here is incredibly difficult. In fact, as we talk about these things, nobody's going to feel very good about this talk. You are going to hate this talk. You are going to struggle with this talk because every one of these categories that we're going to look at, you're going to feel deficient in. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about what we do with those feelings and so on near the end. But these are things that all of us always ought to be working on if we want to see our relationships get healthier. And we're going to dive in. You've got the same deal you've had the last two weeks, kind of a little scale there. And I would just say this to you too. Uh, use that scale if you've got something to mark it with or make a mental mark uh, if you don't have anything to write with. But here's the deal. When you're evaluating yourself in relationships, really the most healthy way to do that is to have someone else evaluate you, right? In other words, get somebody else's input. Uh, if you're married, honey, how am I doing in this category? How am I doing here? What do you think my, where do you think my mark should be? Uh, and that should promote some great conversations, uh, um, some helpful conversations, hopefully. But I would encourage you, get an outside perspective. That's the point. Don't just make your own mark, but see if uh, someone else concurs with you. So here we go. Keys to improving relationships. Number one, there's six of these, so we're going to move quickly. Number one is compassion. Compassion has to do with how you view others. That's what compassion is. It's that place from which you stand and, and then look out and see others. It's your perspective, your predisposition toward others. Uh, it's how you view the person walking down the street. It's how you view the person who's in the newsreel. It's how you see the person that you meet in the store. Uh, it's how you view the person who looks really different than you because of, I don't know, uh, piercings, tattoos, length of hair, color of skin. I don't know. It's the person who uh, acts in ways that you don't frankly approve of. It's the person sometimes in your small group who just behaves differently than you would behave. Paul says we should have compassion toward them, those people as opposed to judgmental attitudes, as opposed to suspicion, as opposed to condemnation, as opposed to feelings of superiority. Wow, that person's a loser. Glad I'm not them, you know, kind of an attitude. Paul says, if you want to relate to people in healthy ways, you have to start from the place of compassion. Uh, we see this played out in the life of Jesus. Jesus was compassionate in the way that he looked at and from the place that he started in relationships with people. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds. Now, remember, these, these are people uh, who uh, he did not know. These are the crowds. Uh, these are people who weren't following him, per se, at this time. Some of these people had not heard any of his teaching at this time. But it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That was his starting place in relationship. Uh, he says they, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's amazing to me, too, that what it says here. I mean, this is, of course, Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, right? He's, he's the embodiment of perfection in relationships. And yet he didn't come into relationships feeling superior. He was superior, but he didn't bring that into the relationship in terms of how he related to people. He didn't act critically. He didn't give off a, a vibe or a spirit of judgment which he could have. Uh, instead, he had compassion. He saw people as worthy of love and acceptance. This is no doubt one of the things that made Jesus such a people person. Would you agree? He was a people person. He seemed to attract people for much of his earthly ministry. Uh, he gave off a sense of being for you as opposed to being against you. 
somehow knew uh, as you interacted with Jesus that he cared about whatever struggle you brought to him. Because uh, uh, most of the people, it seems, when you read the Gospels, liked uh, being around him and they brought him their, whether it was physical ailment or uh, emotional abuse, they, they would bring these things to Jesus. Jesus would speak into their lives. He would often heal them. Uh, you just knew that you mattered to him. You weren't a nobody to this rabbi who is this itinerant teacher. Your problems were something that he seemed to care about. In our small groups, understand, this is one of our objectives, to be like Jesus to each other with this thing of compassion, to share our burdens and our problems, to have others come alongside and actually care about what we're going through. That's compassion. Now, We'll come back to this, but, but kind of make your mental mark or your note in the, in the program there. Where do you see yourself? But again, get input from others and see if they see you as compassionate. Um, being compassionate, starting from a place of compassion as you relate to people, uh, will, have, it will greatly, greatly improve your uh, relationships and the quality of your relationships. Second one, the second key to improving relationships is kindness. Now, we, to talk about this, we've got to be clear what we mean by kindness. It's not the same thing as being nice, okay? I think in a lot of churches, they're filled with people who think that really the one thing that covers all Ten Commandments is just be nice. Just be a nice person, right? Um, the truth is, Jesus was not really a try-to-be-nice kind of guy. I mean, read the Gospels. He didn't go around trying to make everybody like him. He didn't go around trying to just, you know, be nice to everyone, if you remember, he rebuked people that needed to be rebuked. Uh, he would challenge people with truth. Uh, he would also debate people. If people were teaching or, or putting forth false or wrong ideas, Jesus would confront those ideas. Paul's use of the word kindness has actually a different sense, a, a different meaning to it, if you will. Kindness has more to do, in fact, with the capacity to encourage and to build up others uh, more than it is the idea of just being nice to them. And so when you evaluate yourself in this, a question to ask that's really appropriate that kind of helps us get at what this kindness thing is is simply this. In your relationships with others, are you an encourager? Do you relate to people in a way that builds them up? Are you authentically able to speak into other people's lives in a way that helps them grow? One of the leading researchers around marriage, you may have heard this name, Dr. John Gottman. He's written dozens and dozens of books on marriage and done tons and tons and tons of research on the subject of marriage. And what he found in his research is that the presence of kindness, the presence of this thing of encouragement um, is actually a primary indicator of whether or not a marriage will last. I found this so fascinating. Uh, he actually tracked couples on uh, how much time they spend arguing, fighting, you know, having negative interactions versus how much time they spent with positive interactions, things like smiling or touching or words of encouragement or paying compliments or things of that nature. And they found with couples that stayed married, there was actually a very specific ratio of positive to negative. This is, this is crazy. I don't know how they do this. There's a, there's a very specific ratio of positive to negative. Couples whose marriages last had a ratio of at least, you want to know the ratio? Okay. So you can, this will tell you, this is your predictor of whether your marriage is going to make it. Uh, so positive to negative ratio of five to one. Five to one, positive to negative. 
And they found that marriages where couples describe their marriages as really happy, I've got a great marriage, it's just fantastic, the ratio was even higher. It was actually 20 to 1 positive, encouraging interactions for every negative uh, statement or interaction. 20 to 1 in, in really healthy, really positive marriage. Now, question. Does that convict anybody else in this room besides me? So, you know, uh, I'm encouraging you to get outside input. If you're married, get your spouse to rate you. But since Holly's up in the mountains and left me alone, she's not hearing this message, so I'm not telling her about it. But I have, I, I have been working this week, and I'm going to work on it next week. Lots of encouragement and, you know, just kind words. And so, and then in a, you know, a couple of weeks, I'll ask her, honey, how do you think I'm doing in kindness? But you guys don't have that luxury. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stack it in my favor as we, uh, as we move into this. But I do want her input on it. So the, the thing is, being kind to someone isn't rocket science. It's, it's simply being friendly. It's being generous toward them with your time, with your attention. Um, it's being considerate. It's things like noticing them. It's things like uh, paying them a compliment, uh, sending them a note, reminding them uh, that you care, making them laugh, laughing with them, not at them, Hel- helping them, you know, helping them out, being considerate of their needs. And so, and here's the thing, this thing of kindness isn't just some random virtue out there spinning in space. It's actually embedded in the very character of who God is. God himself is kind. Paul was preaching the gospel on one of his missionary journeys in a, a town called Lystra. And uh, this is a group of people who mostly uh, had no Jewish background. These are, these are Greeks. These are Gentiles. And uh, so Paul comes there to share the gospel with them. And he's telling them about God. And they don't have any Old Testament knowledge in their hip pocket like the Jews uh, would. Uh, and so he's telling them about God, a God they've never heard about before. And so he tells them, you know, you know about this God. He says, God has not left himself without testimony to you. And then he says these words. He says, he, God, has shown kindness to you by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. This is the God I'm telling you about. He is a God of kindness. He is a God whose character, whose conduct is rooted and grounded in kindness. Kindness is something that God shows to everybody, whether they know him, love him, or not. Um, He is kind all the time, whether people deserve it or not. Kindness is something that the Spirit of God wants to work into all of our relationships. It's a fruit of the Spirit, meaning that it's part of the very character of God. And if we're going to become more like Jesus, well, kindness is something that will be formed in us as we relate to other people. It's a key to improving our relationships, this thing of just being kind. So uh, uh, once again, make your mark. Get somebody else to check it out. You know, are you as kind as you think you are? Third uh, key to improving relationships is humility. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people misunderstand this word. They think of humility as thinking poorly about themselves. (laughs) Oh, woe is me. I stink. I'm bad. You know, I'm not what I should be. But understand, that's not humility. Uh, Actually, humility in the Bible has little or nothing to do with self-deprecation. Okay? Humility is actually more about how you see others uh, than it is about how you see yourself. 
Uh, Paul was writing to the church at Philippi one time, and he actually gives us a really important insight into what he means by humility. This is Philippians 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, you know, just to, just to puff yourself up or make yourself look good. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, he says, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not, and he tells us what he actually means by that. He, he doesn't mean, oh, I'm scum and everybody's, yeah. no, no. Well, here's what he means by consider them better than yourselves. He says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, he's not encouraging us to feel badly or think badly or poorly of ourselves. He's saying, think more about others. Think about their interests. Think about their needs. That's what is at the heart of humility, right? Making sure that your world is it's about more than just you. That's at the heart of humility. I'm just curious. You ever been in an argument with someone where you kind of knew that the argument itself was proof that you were wrong? You ever been in an argument like that? Holly says to me, uh, has said to me uh, more, on more than one occasion, she said, oh, you're being so selfish, you know? And uh, when I hear that, my first response is, me? <laughs> selfish? I'm a good person. People like me. I'm a pastor. I work for Jesus, for crying out loud. Now, the irony of this is it can be funny right now, but believe me, it's not funny in the moment. But I remember having this argument with Holly about whether or not I was being selfish. And, of course, while I'm having that argument, I'm thinking only about me. And uh, never once did I ask her, well, you know, why do you feel that way? What is what I said or, or didn't say or what is it about what I did or didn't do that makes you feel that way? Help me see what you're seeing. How can I work on that? That would be an evidence of humility right there. But instead, I wanted to win the argument about whether or not I was selfish. You, you see the irony in that? <laughs> and I, I realized in the midst of that argument, I was proving that she was right. I did not point that out to her. And I wouldn't have made that point if she was sitting right there. But uh, anyway, so, yeah. Um. There is a, a direct relationship between how much we focus on ourselves and whether or not we can actually be close to someone else. The more we focus on ourselves, think about ourselves, obsess with how I feel, what I, you know, what I want, the less we're able to care about anybody else. Think about it. If we live in arrogance or we live in selfishness, our capacity to have intimacy with somebody else declines. It just has to. Humility is having a sober assessment of ourselves. You know, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought is language that Paul uses elsewhere. So humility is having a sober assessment of ourselves, but at the same time too, having a sincere interest in others. And this promotes healthy relationships. It promotes a deepening of intimacy, this thing of humility. And this is why uh, when we describe ourselves around here as a church community, we say we are a community of people who aren't perfect and don't pretend to be. We say this because we want, we know oftentimes we don't, but we want to live in humility. 
This is not just a slogan, people who aren't perfect and don't pretend to be. This is actually at the very core of our theology in this church. We all fall short. All of us have messy relationships. All of us have struggles and problems. All of us have stuff going on in our homes and that we would just die if it was up here on the screen for everybody to see. Am I, am I right? Oh, not, not your home? Just mine. Uh-huh. Because the point is, none of us are perfect. I recently talked to somebody who told me they had trouble coming to our church uh, because they felt that if they came to church here, it was kind of a sham And that was because their life was messy and their life was difficult. It was in a kind of a broken place and they felt they didn't really belong sitting in churches, uh, sitting in this church. (laughs) When I heard that, I I said, wow, okay, you do realize you've got it all backwards. Um, I mean, if your life is messy, if your life is broken, then church is exactly where you belong with the rest of us whose lives are messy and broken. I asked them, have you noticed in church when you've come, and they don't come often, but I said, have you noticed we do a confession of sin most of the time? Uh, we, we don't do that for filler. I don't say, hey, Jake, we need some filler. Uh, get a confession of sin and throw it in there. We, we do it because that's just the truth about us. When we come into the presence of a holy God to worship him, the truth about us is we come as broken people, messy people. Things are not as they should be in our lives. So we've got to be truthful. You know, you might come to church and look around on a Sunday and see people who look like they have it all together. That's only because you haven't been in their home. You're obviously not in their small group. If you were, you would know better. You would know that these are people just like you. Again, we are a people who aren't perfect and don't want to pretend to be. It takes humility to say that and own it and mean it, right? And not judge others who may be broken in some place where you're not broken, but you're broken in other places, you see. This is just the dynamic of of how our lives work. But you see, by saying that we're not perfect, you don't pretend to be, and by meaning it, it helps us to care about others who are in difficult straits, whose lives are broken. It helps us to remember that, dadgummit, we all just need Jesus, all of us, no exceptions. So I would encourage you on this one, make your mark. Uh, how are you doing on this humility thing? Do you come at people? Do you approach people with humility, caring about their needs, owning the truth about you? You're, you're not perfect. You shouldn't pretend to be. Are their needs important to you? Here's the fourth thing. Uh, fourth key to improving relationship would be gentleness. Paul mentions gentleness. Uh, what does he mean by gentleness? Good question. Um, Does he mean quietness? Does he mean passivity? Some people could read it that way. Paul certainly understood that relationships can be filled with tension and conflict. I mean, uh, they can at times be heated. They can be difficult. They can involve telling difficult truths to each other. I mean, parents discipline children, right? What are you doing when you're disciplining? Well, you're, you're trying to tell them a difficult truth, right? Depending on age, there's age appropriate ways to do that. But that's conflict, right? Spouses process differences all the time. If you don't do that, you, I doubt, have a very healthy marriage. If you learn healthy ways to process those difficulties, you probably have a healthy marriage. Friends disagree. In moments like that, it is easy to respond in anger. Anger is a big problem in most of us. Um, it manifests itself differently in, in our lives. But, you know, in anger, it's easy to say things you you later just totally regret. Anybody here in anger ever said something they wish they could get back? Big problem though, right? 
you can't get it back. It's out there. It's been said. I one time, this is years ago, uh, but Holly and I were having a doozy of a fight. And like anything, I don't even remember what it was about. I'm sure she was wrong, but I, I don't remember. I have no re- recollection, actually, of what we were fighting about. But it got so heated. I mean, you know, we were doing the yelling thing at each other. And I, uh, I got so fed up with it. I said something like, you know, being married to you is just awful. You know, something, I think the divorce word got mentioned. I wasn't, that, that wasn't something I had thought through. I, I hadn't been talking to a lawyer. I wasn't, I wasn't going to act on this. But it was out there now. What do you do with hurtful, hateful words that get out there? And in anger, that happens. And this is why gentleness is such a key to relational health. Gentleness is so important. Gentleness is being tender even when you might have tough things to say. Gentleness calms you down or gets you under control so that you don't say things you later regret and just wish you could take back. Uh, There's a great example of gentleness. There are actually many examples of gentleness in Jesus' life as he dealt with people. Um, Many of you know the story of the the woman. This is in John 4 of Jesus dealing with the woman in Samaria. You know, she's come to the well in the middle of the day, which is a clue that something's not right because women don't come to the well in the middle of the day. They come either in the evening or they come in the early morning when it's cooler to lug that water back back to their home. But she's there in the middle of the day. She's trying to avoid people. Jesus obviously knew this. Uh, there's, there's something going on in this woman. Maybe it has to do with shame. Maybe it has to do with her self-identity. But she doesn't want to be seen by other people. And they strike up a conversation. Of course, Jesus is a Jew. This woman's a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans don't talk. Jesus is a male. This is a woman. Male and females don't just strike up conversations at wells. And yet Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. It's a little bit shocking to her. She wonders, why is he doing this? They start talking about theology at first, and then the conversation becomes more personal. And when it does get personal, the woman tries to get back to theology, right, and get it off the personal. It's kind of interesting. But this is one of the few times, too, in Scripture where Jesus actually identifies himself to someone as the Messiah. He tells the Samaritan woman, of all people, that he is the Messiah. He is the living water that she needs, and he is the Messiah. And she gets very interested in this conversation that she's having with Jesus. And that's when Jesus says, well, go call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband, Uh, which is technically true. She has no husband. And Jesus right there could have left the conversation. He could have stepped out of the conversation. There's a lot of things he could have done, but he doesn't just leave it actually for her sake. Because you see, if she's going to embrace the Savior, the Messiah, she's got to come clean with all that shame that she feels, that thing that she's trying to hide by coming to the well at midday. And so Jesus presses her with gentleness. He presses her. He says, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands. Now, we don't know the back story to that, but that's unusual to have five husbands. We don't know if they all died. That that would be really, really unusual. Uh, Maybe they just all left her or some of them just left her and left her high and dry. Uh, We don't know what the back story to that is, but there's a lot of dysfunction. Whatever it is, something very dysfunctional. The fact is, he says, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Something in her feels desperate enough that she's willing to live with a guy who won't ask her to marry him. I mean, there's stuff going on, you know, under the surface here. And Jesus brings that to the surface. He says, the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. You don't have a husband. 
Now, it's interesting. Jesus is not condoning where she's at, but he's also not letting this conversation off the hook because he knows something's got to happen in her heart. Something's got to stir there so that she comes running to the Messiah, right, and sees her need. He's not saying it's okay. Oh, what you're doing doesn't matter. It's no problem. But notice, too, he doesn't get angry. He's not screaming at yelling at her. He's not saying, oh, yeah, that's the way Samaritan women are. Yeah, I know what you're like. You're scum of the earth. You know, he's not condemning her. He's not condoning it. He's not lashing out at her. He's truthful, but gentle, very gentle. He's the Messiah. And that's what we need to be in each other's lives, too. Our families or work associates or schoolmates or friendships or small group. We need to learn to tell the truth with gentleness, absolutely vital. I'll tell you the truth. Relationships can't really go deeper unless we learn to do that. Speak truth, but do it gently. Do it with grace. Um, The truth served up harshly um, actually causes all kinds of damage. When you serve up truth in anger, man, it can create bitterness. It can cause fractures that almost seem impossible to ever put back together. In Proverbs 15, the writer says this, a gentle answer turns away wrath. That's how important gentleness is, right? But a harsh word stirs up anger. Gentleness, you see, has the power to rebuild. It has the power to restore. It can do such great things in relationships. We have to bring gentleness into the arena of our truth-telling. A lot of you are good truth tellers, or maybe you know someone who is. They love to tell truth. They'd like to tell you a piece of truth. But the way they tell you or the way they go about it is actually destructive. Doesn't do any good to tell people truth in a harsh or angry fashion. They won't hear it. They won't respond well. So, I mean, take your, you know, your programs, put your mental mark or your mark on that scale. Ask, you know, ask your spouse, ask a friend, how am I doing in this? Do you see gentleness in me as I have dealt with you or others? Okay, the fifth one, key to improving a relationship is patience. Boy, do we need patience. Are you being patient right now, patient with the length of this sermon? Or are you being judgmental? Just asking. Anyway, patience is what we expect from others, but what we think others don't deserve. That's patience. To be patient, you have to be committed in a relationship. Uh, you have to be there for the long haul, even when it's not easy. Holly and I have been married for 40 years this year. You know how we did it? Paul's next phrase actually describes how we did it. She with me and I with her, bearing with one another. I mean, that's patience. That's what patience is. It's bearing with one another. It's being willing to wait. It's being willing to wrestle. It's being willing to argue. It's being willing to patch it up when you argue badly. It's being willing to suffer if need be. That's bearing with one another. Relationships are always a mixture of good and bad and joy and sorrow and ups and downs. Sometimes they bring us energy. Sometimes being in a relationship can be burdensome, depending on what's going on in the relationship. When we're in a relationship with someone, we have to carry what they carry if it's a healthy relationship. Uh, their sins, their imperfections, their struggles. And we, we come into the world of those things and we have to deal with them just like they have to deal with ours. But, and we do this not because, oh, we should, it's just what I have to do. No, we do this because every single day of our lives, this is what God does for us. Every single day. It's what he did for us on the cross when Jesus died there. 
Jesus carried our burdens. He bore our shame. And not just on the cross, he does it every single day, even today for us. You see, the point is the gospel calls us to be, to embody patience with others because God is always, always patient with us. The apostle Peter said this one time as he wrote to a church, he said, the Lord is slow in keeping his promise. He's talking about the promise to return. Uh, in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is also a quality of the character of God, patience. God is patient with us. He's patient with others. He's patient with the church. He's patient with people outside the church. And he calls us to exercise patience toward others as well. Now, of course, um, in spite of patience, not every relationship lasts. Marriages fail, trust gets broken, friendships can fade, people hurt each other, sometimes so deeply it seems impossible to patch it back together, which brings us to the final and the most important key, I think, to healthy relationships. That's this thing that Paul mentions next, this thing of forgiveness. The reason relationships are hard is because forgiveness is hard, is it not? It's hard. It's because we hurt each other. At some point in, in your life, someone is going to hurt you. In fact, everyone in your life at some point is going to hurt you. Everyone. And when they do, you have a choice to make. Will you forgive or will you withhold forgiveness? That's your choice. Will you forgive or will you hold on to and cling to things like anger and bitterness and resentment? I was just talking to someone whose marriage ended seven or eight years ago, <clears throat> but the big issue in their life is this thing of forgiveness. They're still battling being able to forgive and it's eating them up. It's consuming their life even post-divorce. It's not easy stuff, this thing of forgiveness. But I'll tell you what, when we don't forgive, it becomes so corrosive so toxic in our spirits. It, it kind of pollutes and bleeds into everything we do and to every other relationship. Your spirit cannot really thrive, I would submit, without learning to forgive. Forgiveness is releasing. Um, now, needless to say, relationships cannot reform and reconcile as they should without forgiving. I mean, without forgiving, we become cold, we get callous, we put up walls, we get defensive, we build resentments. Very, very divisive, very, very hurtful to relationship. This is why Paul writes here in Colossians 3, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's pretty all consuming, <laughs> how he forgives us. All inclusive, I should say. In other words, forgive not because it's easy, Forgive not because they ask for it. Forgive not because they even deserve it. Forgive one another simply because that's what God has done for you. That's what Paul is saying. You know, Jesus went to the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even as we're, we're putting him to death, he's forgiving us. You know, I, I, this is not easy stuff. Having healthy relationships is not easy stuff. Now, you can have broken relationships all over the place if you don't pursue them, if you don't have the conversations you should have, if you don't conduct yourself in the way that Jesus would guide us in relationships. You can have all kinds of relationships. Most of them will be so fractured, they won't be healthy. But to get health in, in, this area, in the area of relationships, it, one of the requirements is this thing of forgiveness. And when we forgive others, we so honor Jesus. 
we so honor God because we're actually acting just like him. And it just so happens to, to be the way, the key to human thriving and flourishing, this thing of human happiness. Uh, you, you won't experience happiness in this all-important area of relationships if you don't learn how to forgive. Now, we have to ask ourselves the hard questions that we've been asking ourselves this morning. You know, do I start in my relationships with people in this place of compassion? Do I show kindness towards others? Do I live with humility? Do I get exhibit gentleness and patience? Do I really forgive others? I gotta be honest with you, this week when I was wrestling putting this sermon together, I thought, why am I giving this sermon? <laughs> and then I thought, oh, okay, God, because you want me to think about this stuff. I, I'm a mess in these areas. Why, why am I giving this sermon? I think because he wanted me to systematically think this through. Um, it does remind me of what Paul said at the end of this text. He says, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds all these things we're talking about together in perfect unity. Love does that. But then my question becomes, well, where do we get this love? I mean, you know, how do we do this? It seems so impossible. Well, Paul tells us at the beginning of the text that, uh, that I read for you, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Anytime the Bible uses this language of choosing, it's hearkening back to the idea of adoption. You know, I was adopted, many of you know, I was adopted as an infant and my parents always made a big deal out of me being adopted. They said, other babies, parents just get stuck with them. We chose you, they would tell me. You're special to us. We chose you, we brought you into our family, we made you a member of this family. I always thought everybody else got ripped off, you know, but I got chosen. And so that's, that's what God, that's what Paul is reminding us of here. God has chosen you. Not because you deserved it. He just, he chose to love you and he calls you his dearly beloved. Uh, you know, we, we aren't to go out. Uh, the point of all this is that we're not to go out and build relationships because we have the capacity or we have the capability. We go out and do relationships well because that is what God has done for us, you see. God has demonstrated this and is constantly demonstrating this kind of love to us, this fact that he's adopted us into his family. That's how much he loves us. You see, the real key to healthy relationships is knowing that we are God's chosen people. We are holy. We are dearly loved because of Jesus. It's so clear. It's so powerful. That is the truth we live in. That is the truth we stand on day in, day out. That is what enables us to manifest these qualities, which seem slightly out of reach for us, but we can do it because he does it in us and he does it for us. This is not a self-improvement list, right? You're not going to be able to go down this. Let's go. I'll just work harder at that. I'll just work harder at that. I'll just, no, that's not going to work for you. This is about being loved by God Almighty, our Heavenly Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. He loves us. He will empower us to be and to do these things. And then taking that love that we get from him and turning around and showing that love to other people, whether it's in our families, our work, our schools, our churches, our small groups. The point is when it comes to relationships, we are all of us way in over our heads. There is no way to get it all right. And I'm just guessing, I'm going to assume that you're marking your little program like I would do mine. And, uh, and as you mark it, you're, you're not on the 18. It's not like, well, you know, 9.8, hmm, well, 9.7, you know, you really need to get an outside opinion if that's the way you're grading your test, right? <laughs> get an outside opinion. There's no way to do any of this on our own. But we understand that we aren't supposed to. 
Because there is a God who stands before us, who's gone before us. He looks us in the eye, seeing all of our messes, knowing all of our stories, all the details, who says to us, I dearly love you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And out of that confidence, out of that security, we go about the messy business of doing relationships. And there's grace and there's love available for us in this, no matter how messy it feels. 